This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the fourth installment of the 20, Fall 2017 UC Santa Barbara Innovator Story Series. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. If I seem especially excited, it's because I am. We have a wonderful sponsor tonight, uh, Pay Junction. Pay Junction is a growing company here in Santa Barbara. To all of you in the room, they're hiring. They're going, they're right at that 100 um, employee point, which I know I've been through it a couple times. That's an exciting point to be at. Things really start to accelerate from there. And anyone watching this or listening to this um, on their computers or while they're jogging or driving or whatever, look up Pay Junction, check out what they're up to, and see if there might be an opportunity for you to move to Santa Barbara. Pay Junction is uh, providing payment services, really pervasive payment um, infrastructure to mid and large um, businesses. Uh, obviously, they do processing of all kinds of um, different types of payments. They have electronic signature capabilities. They offer multi-user, multi-location reporting, all the things you would expect. But it's also a great place to work. I know they're doing, despite doing $4 billion in transactions, it's still a really cool place to work. I think Glassdoor has them at number 11 for work-life balance uh, and number 29 of best country, uh, companies in the country to work for. So that's pretty remarkable for a small uh, company here in Santa Barbara. So please check them out online. And for you folks in the room, check them out um, in Santa Barbara for a job. So we have tonight with us Alex Fong. Alex is one of those rare entrepreneurs who's been able to create amazing technology in the lab and bring it into the real world and commercialize it. So a lot of academics can do the first part, where they can create incredible breaking edge of technology or leading edge technology, but then they don't really have the skills required to do much with it besides write papers and do more research. Alex has done both. Uh, he was the co-founder, CEO, and board member of Arion from 2008 all the way through 2016, 2016 when uh, he led the company's sale to Juniper Networks for $165 million. So that alone is an amazing accomplishment. To be able to do that as a business person is great, to, but to be able to do it with technology that you helped create in the lab is, is unbelievable. So what Ariane has done is they, they took a process of um, creating photonic integrated circuits and this is going to be the layman's version. We'll get the, the, the more uh, correct version from Alex. But what they've done is they made it possible for, for um, people that are making circuit boards to use their existing technology to create these photonic circuit boards. Um, if, if, before Ariane's technology, you had to create a whole new line. You had to basically create a whole new plant to create these photonic um, integrated circuits. So it's saving companies hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a, a huge advancement in technology, and that's why Juniper Networks purchased the company. Alex is still with Juniper Networks. He runs the Photonics ASICs um, group uh, as the senior director of the Silicon Photonics um, department. So we're going to learn a little bit about what's it like to work at a large company after you started your own company. So I mentioned Alex is, is, a, is a renowned academic. He's, re he's written and co-authored over 80 papers. He's co-authored three chapters of um, a number of books, and he has filed or been granted 18 patents. So again, alone, if that was all he had done, that's, that, that would be um, top shelf academic credentials, but he's done that and more. He's also won a number of awards for his technology, and it's, it's really technology that was created with Alex, John Bowers, and their colleagues here at uh, UC Santa Barbara. And he also worked at IBM, um, Lawrence Livermore National Labs, and Intel before founding Arion. So I'm, I have no doubt that he was able to use those big company experiences when he went from the lab into his own business. We'll learn a little bit more about how he leveraged those experiences. 
He earned his BS degree in electrical engineering. And what I found interesting was he had two minors. He had a minor in math and a minor in physics um, from San Jose University. He earned his master's degree and his PhD here at UC Santa Barbara, which we're quite proud of him. Um, he's also an alumnus of the Harvard Business School Owner President Management Program, and he's a very active member in the Young Presidents Organization. Let's give Alex a very strong homecoming welcome. Thank you. Well, it really is rare to have someone that's, that's been on both sides of, of, the, of the ledger, so to speak. I've worked with Klaus Schauser. Many people know Klaus for um, being a, a serial entrepreneur, started the company we sold to Citrix for a sizable amount of money, and he, then he went on and created Appfolio, which is a public company with a multi-billion dollar valuation. But folks like you are rare um, or a rare breed. So I love origin stories. Anyone that reads my blog knows that I love to always hear how companies got started. There's usually a pretty good story. Um, and, I, and I'm really curious about the name because it's, it's basically a word that you guys invented. So what is the story behind that? So we thought that the technology that we had that we developed at UCSB was really kind of groundbreaking where, again, the world has changed and, and things will be different. Um, at that time, kind of like mythology and... and uh, people in optics would talk about electro-optic systems. Eos was a kind of interesting word because that's mm-hmm. the Greek god, goddess of dawn light, right? But actually, aurora is the Roman uh, counterpart. Of, ah, okay. of it. And so a lot of words that have to do with light come from aurora. So the aurora of borealis, uh, the, the, the word aurum for gold because it's shiny. Mm-hmm. Uh, that person has a good aura. That's all mm-hmm. from the word aurora, right? And so we thought, you know, light, new day, um, we'll kind of do a fake conjugation so that we can, <laughs> you know, uh, get a domain. Yeah, I, and I, the URL was yeah, available. I would have dropped the, the vowels if it was a modern name, but, uh, you know. Uh, right, yeah, right. No, I'm kidding, but, um, yeah, so that's what we ended up <laughs> Believe with. me, I've seen some yeah. crazy URLs. Yeah, uh, yeah, so that's where the name came from. And so what, what got you started? So I, as I mentioned in your introduction, you were in the lab. Oftentimes that's enough of a reward for, for someone that has an academic bent. Um, what What pushed you or what were the circumstances that led you to take it out? So I think my grad school experience was pretty unique, right, where uh, John Bowers runs a really, you know, a group that's really real-world oriented, right? right? And so the the problems that we were solving were really practical, right? It wasn't about, um, you know, trying to climb this this very nuanced vector of, of, uh, you know, something that wasn't necessarily practical, mm-hmm. uh, but it's it to solve real problems. On top of that, when I was in grad school, John also put us in front of a lot of the funding agencies and with a lot of the customers. So we were used to working in teams, and we were used to selling our ideas. And so when it came time to graduate, I was probably about one year off from graduating, uh, you know, trying to figure out what to do, um, and I was thinking, well, we have something, right? Um, and you know, John and I met one day, and we were like, we should probably start a company, right? Let's, I mean, can we do this? Let's, let's start a company, right? right, right. And, and then that, you know, that was it. And so... Um, How old were you at the time? I was, I think I was about 28. 28, okay. 28, 29. So yeah. you had built, I mean, you were, were you a PhD at that point? I was or? a PhD student, Okay, so you, yeah. you had invested a lot of your adult life in attaining this goal, yep. did, you, did you get support from those around you? Or did people think, what are you doing, Alex? You, you just got this PhD. 
Uh, no, I mean, if people were pretty supportive, yeah. right? I, I think in general, I kind of do whatever I want to do, right? So um, my family was super supportive. Great. Um, you know, my dad thought that, you know, this is a better time. There's no better time than now because I, agree. I have nothing to lose, right? You know, I didn't have kids, didn't have a mortgage to pay. Right. Right. It's, it's pretty low risk. Well, right? you're fortunate to have that kind of support in your yeah. inner circle. I mean, I know I, I have office hours with students all the time where they want to do one thing and the parents are pressuring them to do something else. We've had speakers on the stage, even in this quarter of speaker series, where they face similar situation where... The, the parents wanted them to be a doctor or whatever, yep. and they had to make that hard choice. It's already hard anyway. <clears throat> Starting a business is never something you do lightly, but then when you have to go against the grain, it, it makes yep. it that much more difficult. So you were fortunate to have John as your advisor. Um, how instrumental, and, and I am asking the question a little naively, I know John personally, but I don't know kind of how he handles the classroom and then the company building. How instrumental was he in helping you build the team? I mean, that's obviously a very vital part, especially in the early stages. So I think John has a talent at that also where um, it's, it's always just enough, mm. right? Where the, I think that the key is to solve these problems, right? Like part of it is, is, is for me to go on the journey, right? right, right. And so in the beginning, um, some of it was just having John's time and, and also he's also like in it and, and driving the cadence too. Mm -hmm. so, we're, so we started out by meeting once a week. Right and like, okay, well, what's what's the product? Mm -hmm. What's the product? Mm -hmm. How what's are we going to? What's the product? Yeah. What are we going to do? What's the product? Right. And then we'd brainstorm, and and then we'd give each other action items. Go off, go do stuff. Found what we, you know, collected what we, we found, and, and, and then would discuss those sorts of things. And and um, over time, uh, it was less and less mm -hmm. um, as you know we were kind of walking on our own, mm -hmm. right. That's a similar experience that I've seen. So I'm an investor in some companies, and I'm an advisor through my venture fund. And I, I see the same sort of pattern, especially with the healthy companies. At the beginning, it's usually a weekly cadence. It's a phone call, and we're touching base. And then over time, as the company grows, and they just don't need me as much anymore, those are the companies that are obviously taking off and doing well. So, but you saw, I would assume that you saw John having those interactions with other students mm -hmm. or postdocs or whatever uh, they were, whatever level they were at. But not all of them transpire into or result in companies. What what do you think was different? Was was it was it just your your drive, your passion to get this thing out in the market? So or? I think it, it's 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 you know everybody has their own kind of life purpose and what what drives them there, right? Um, and and you get the whole gamut out of out of grad students, right? Some want to be professors and they mm. do go become professors. John has. Uh, some of the most prestigious professors in the world came out of John's group. Right. Um, other ones do business. Other ones become phenomenal researchers in, in uh, labs, right? And I think uh, it was something that I wanted to do was kind of different, and, and it was fun. And I'm not the only entrepreneur that's come out of John's group. Right, right. You know, he, he has a, a nice roster of successful entrepreneurs. Well, I think what's, what's interesting what you say there is, that, and this isn't a commercial for John, we'll move on from him, uh, enough about him, but the last word on him is it's it's quite a testament to 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 his ability as a teacher to have. I mean, it'd be one thing to optimize everyone on entrepreneurship and have a lot of people crash and burn, but a few that make it. But it sounds like, and I've never been a student of his, of course, but it sounds like he's he's really good at helping the. I think what a teacher should do is help the student really find their own path and their and, totally. and, and really do the journey or go on the journey that makes the most sense for them. Um, at least I, I, that's something I strive to do. So we're going to get this first student question in a second, but I'm going to follow up on what you said about journey, because I do think 
entrepreneurship is truly a journey. It's, it's usually a lot longer. It takes a lot longer than you would expect. And I've said it before, if, if you really knew what you were facing, you couldn't get out of bed in the morning. Like if somebody walked up to you and said, Alex, I know you're starting this company, but let me just rattle off the challenges you're going to face. It's daunting. It's overwhelming. What, what were the, now that you can look back, what were, what was the unexpected elements or the challenges that you really didn't anticipate, but when you look back, you realize that you had to conquer them um, and and it really changed, your, your dream really changed from its initial naive dream, they're all naive, if they weren't you wouldn't do it, to really the hardened reality. So I think when you're, when you want to start a company and be CEO, the breadth of the things that you have to understand is pretty broad, yep. right? And, um, you know, just, uh, I didn't necessarily appreciate other fields outside of science, right? Mm. Like, I spent the first year doing the accounting at night, Yeah. right? And to sit there and work on the general ledger and mash, manage the cash balance yep. and have somebody look at it once a month and we'd produce the income statement in the balance sheet and, and do all of that, um, I thought that was great for me because yep. it, it kind of opened my eyes to, to things where, you know, it's like now I can read balance sheets and income statements and I can read, you know, public companies' earnings reports and yep. make my own assessment of what right. I think about them. Right, right. Like those sorts of things I never expected that I was going to learn. Now, I knew that I was going to learn things that I didn't think I'd learn, mm-hmm. right? But um, really dealing with how painful some of those tasks are and then understanding the value at the same time. Yep. Um, and then also... A lot, a lot of other things like financial instruments, like, you know, I, I didn't know about these different types of loans and uh, other things that are kind of lubricants to our economy, right? right? Yep. Um, even investment bankers, you know, like, it's, it's easy to, to, to wonder why they get paid so much, but they're, they're such an effective lubricant to getting deals done to move the economy forward. And so the, I think the whole breadth of that was unexpected um, in terms of knowing what it would taste like, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, yeah, and then I think the, the, the culture and people aspect, I, I didn't realize how important and how, how much that would resonate with me. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I, uh, at the beginning, it was all about tech. Right. Right. Yeah, and at the beginning, it's tactical. You're just day-to-day trying yep. to survive, get the job done. Yep. No, but that's, that's a really good point about you don't – sometimes when – and I was this way, absolutely – when I was younger, I didn't appreciate what the other aspects of the company were doing. I mean, sales and marketing, whatever I happened to be doing, was the most important thing. Yeah. Um, I did, it wasn't quite that bad. But, but we, do, we are a bit egocentric, even the best of us, and we tend to overvalue what we do and undervalue what others do. And it's not until you're forced to do that. To, or at the very least, one thing we did in some of my companies was we would have cross-disciplinary teams where we would team people up for the different, just as companies get bigger, um, to, to really... Not, not just the obvious thing of trying to let people get to know other people, but so they can start being empathetic with what the other departments are going through. And companies that are growing fast, well, pretty much every department's under some strain. It may not be obvious to all the other people at the company, but every department's struggling with the growth. And so when you, when you expose people to each other, those stories start to come out. And, oh, that's why you guys are requiring us to do this now, because it actually starts to make sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, but no substitute for empathy than putting yourself in their shoes, like physically. We'll take the first student's question. Hi. So have you always been interested in creating a photonic company like Arion, or was it created in a more like random or opportunistic sense and then just built from there? So... Prior to going to grad school, I was interested in, you know, my friends and I would sit and geek out on code, and we had, like, dreams about building companies and stuff like that. Um, And then I kind of buckled down and focused on school, 
to realize that I love physics and um, that I thought optics was pretty fun to, to deal with and to explore. Um, then I went to grad school, and, and at that point, you know, when, when we just realized that, hey, there's, there's something useful here, that was the point that, that it made sense to make the company. Um, I think a lot of it is just, you know, to, to your original statement of, of you know, the uh, internships uh, may change your life, yeah. right? Those statements, like life happens in, in, in these kind of random events that will just take you on a different fork. And uh, putting yourself out there so that you can uh, take advantage of, of, of hopping on whatever that random thing is and, and write it, I, I think it's, it's super important. And, and you know, there are a lot of times when I've planned things and they don't go anywhere and I am somewhere randomly and I just take advantage of it and my life changes. So. Yeah, and I think um, it's, in fact, our, I mean, we had met before, but I saw you on a surf air flight, and I think that's in some obtuse way ended up, you know, helped you end up here. That was months ago. Yeah. Um, so life is a bit random, but you have to have your eyes and ears open to when those opportunities are knocking. And you guys are the right age. I mean, as Alex was saying, you don't have a lot to lose now. You may feel like you do, but it's only going to become more and more and more, and you're going to become less, and, um, you're going to be more and more risk adverse, more and more things that you could lose. So be a yes. If somebody throws out something, just say, sure, let's, let's check it out. The worst thing that happens is you go to an event that's not quite what you thought it was going to be. Um, so take, take advantage of these opportunities while you're in school. So um, let's talk, speaking of school, so you, you were doing a postdoc. You were in John's class and a bunch of other classes. You were trying to start a business. Did you take a sabbatical? I mean, how did you split that time? How did you split that workload? So there's no sabbatical. So... In the first stage, we, we built the company as an R&D services company. Okay, and so my, my goal at, in that first stage was to export all the things that I knew into other people that they could execute it. So yeah. in the morning, I would meet with, at the time I had three employees, I would meet with the employees and um, set them off for the day. Then I'd go do the postdoc gig in the daytime. Right. And you know at the end of the day, we'd... Circle back, you look at the group. data, oh, wow. right, and and then at night I do accounting, right, or write grants, those mm-hmm. sorts of things, right, mm-hmm. and so it was kind of a daytime nighttime thing, right, right. Did it feel? I mean, you were younger then; you're still young. Um, did it did it feel like work, or did it become a grind, or were you just so pumped up that that was fun? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's. Uh, uh, I can't stop moving in general, so right. You know, it it was a great way to use my energy, right? Yeah, I, good. I loved every minute of it. And it was painful, but I, I loved it. I, it's funny. I mean, I, I kind of feel that way about my start of Sue. It's like it's, it's, it's fun in hindsight. Sometimes during, in the time, it was incrementally hard day by day. But when you, you ask yourself, why would I do that? It wasn't for the money. It was, it was just because you were motivated with the solving the problem, or in, yep. in your case, getting that um, technology outside of the lab. Um, that, but, but that's remarkable. Not very many people can pull that off. So I know that you you had some... The technology morphed and changed as it always does. Nothing's ever like it is in the lab. What, how did it change? And maybe give a, we'll give a little bit more of a, um, an idea of I did a poor job in the introduction of explaining what the technology actually does. And then how did that manifest itself? Maybe even after the acquisition, were there things that just, um, when you were folded in into Juniper, did you end up having to make some compromises or changes? Or even before that, before the acquisition, did you feel that you took a different path that you hadn't foreseen? So I think the value of it in the academic sphere versus the commercial sphere are different. So mm. the technology that we made um, was, was what we call photonic integration. So if you look back at computers 
you know, in the 60s, people would build computers by assembling transistors. And so you get as many transistors together and you put it together on a board and you, you, you make a, a very simple computer, right, um, that can do very little things. But it wasn't until you could print them together on a microchip, mm. right, that you, it became something that was, um, you could manufacture and scale and have true complexity. You know, we, we thought that that was the same view where, okay, well, let me take these optical components, put them all together on a chip, and that's the value. But actually, it really became, what well, we realized that it's not that it's, like, the, the first layer is that it's integrated, but the other layer is the ecosystem that it enables, right? Mm-hmm. Now that these things are together and it fits in the supply chain, I can actually add this functionality of these electronic chips right next to it that I couldn't do before because mm-hmm. the signals were too disparate. Right. And did, when did that come to light? Once you once you started partnering with folks, or once the chips were actually in the market, or is that something you foresaw when you looked at the ecosystem? Uh, probably around year two or three, we started uh-huh. realizing that we're looking at the problem uh, too uh, narrowly. It, yeah, too narrowly, and and so all the things that we were developing, we were still developing, but it kind of changed the flavor of it to you know leverage that value. Did, so did that result in overt partnerships, or was it just an informal relationship with some of these other vendors? We did a lot of early business development to oh, kind of okay. establish our strategy. So again, our, our company was in, in a few stages. First is is an R and D company just to generate cash flow and yep. build IP. Yep. Then it was you know build a product after that, like early product development, then later product development. Right. Um, in the early stage, we did a lot of uh, business intelligence and. You know, people would come and talk to us, and they go, "That's nice, go away." <laughs> but in all those conversations, uh, you know, um, you kind of get glimpses of what they care about because mm-hmm. sometimes you can see, you know, eyebrow, eyebrow raise or something. They go, they're latching onto that idea, yep. and then you kind of piece all these things together into a form, into a strategy, right? And then in the second stage, there was more overt statements of what's value, right? Where it's like, um, you know where they're actually engaging with you and, and yep. it really shaped us. Because, again, our, our application is a business-to-business application for infrastructure and it's not a build-it-and-they-will-come strategy. It's more of a build something that you know that there's kind of pool on the other end once mm-hmm. you have it made. Yep. Yeah, and you knew that there was a market opportunity for yep. similar technology, maybe legacy technology. But I want to go back to um, something you said. So did, just to be clear, that's a, that's a great way to build a business, those, those, multi, those stages. The first stage, you're, you're kind of a consultant. You're out there, you're saying, we have four smart men and women from UCSB, and we can solve hard problems, and if you pay us money, we'll help solve them. All the while, you're building solutions, technology, maybe even hardware, that you can then go off and sell over and over and over again. The mistake some people make, obviously you guys didn't make this mistake, or the hesitancy some companies have at that stage is they, they're afraid to charge for their services. So they'll do a lot of free pilots, a lot of free assessments. Did you guys struggle with that, or were you just, hey, man? No, because we, in the beginning, we bootstrapped anyway. So the whole thing was generating revenue. Mm. I think the key discipline, though, was, was that revenue didn't become a metric that misled us, right? Mm. Because if, if revenue is the metric, then you'll, you know, you'll, you'll do anything to gain met revenue. Right. But if the goal is to build a service company, that makes sense. But if the goal is to build a product company, right. then you better make sure that the things that you're working on lead you into that direction. And so sometimes we'd have to say, no. Which is this, hard. Yep, this does not lead to 
to our future. Yep. So we must say no. no Somebody's waving a check in front of you, and it's like, oh, I got bills to pay. I want to hire people. Yep. That that discipline is really really important, and that's yeah. that is also the you get hooked on kind of bad profits. You totally you, you start building your company as if this is your your top line revenue, and it's hard to wean yourself off of that. Yep. Yep. So it's a good business good good business practice, good business model. It's a hard one to pull off. Um, so I know that you did bootstrap the business for a number of years. This might not be right. Crunchbase, I think, indicates you raised a little over twenty million. When when did you raise that money, and how did that process go? Was that did you ever get any pushback from being a? Was it a conversation such that yes, we'll give you the money, but we we want to see you hire a, a new team, or were you so far along that the investors were just happy to get money into the company? So we raised our first money in year three. So in year three, we had done our um, kind of. Uh, we developed our strategy at that point from, from interacting with customers and understanding how does our technology intersect um, the kind of sweet spot where right. incumbents can't serve, the need is coming, mm-hmm. and will continue to come. Right. Um, and we can make a real play there from a kind of economic model perspective. At that point, we, we were saying, okay, um, what we want to do is engage with the end customer, but if I were the end customer, I wouldn't engage with Orion at mm-hmm. that stage. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, is, well, why? Well, so the thing is the technology needs to be of X maturity and it needs to have these kind of features. We need to have a certain supply chain in place and so on and so yep. on. Yep. So we kind of created a list of what we needed to be in two or three years for when we engage the customer. And we went after angels at that point for mm-hmm. that. And, um, you know, the the super angel that we had, Milton Chang, he's, uh, you know, a titan in this field. Um, spent a lot of time with him, uh, just kind of uh, getting to know each other. And so um, understanding, like, why does he invest? Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. How can we work together? Mm-hmm. What's the working relationship really going to be? What do we want to get out of it? Right, right. You know, who are you as a person? Right. And, and we spent about six months doing that. Um, and then after that, um, you know, he basically agreed to be my mentor. And he invested, nice. right? And so uh, there wasn't a point where there was like a statement of, "Hey, we got to replace this management team." Mm-hmm. The, the, the thought was, "We're going to grow this management team." So it's so, so it's suddenly by the time you took institutional money post angel, you had the management team built out. There wasn't any question as to who was running the business or where right. it was going. Right. And it's great to I mean mentor, mentor, mentor. It's internships and mentors are make all the difference in the world. Um, so speaking of having that management team all built out, that can be a challenge for some people that come from a technical background. Um, I've worked with some brilliant, wonderful technical people, but they're not always, maybe they're just a little reticent to, to, to be salesy enough to recruit people, or I, there's a million reasons, right? But they're just not always as comfortable hiring professional managers. And some um, have a little bit of founderitis where they're not comfortable giving up like you did the accounting, you're probably happy to give that up. But there, but sometimes there's duties where they're just not comfortable handing those over. Did you struggle with that? And if you did, to, you know, how did you overcome that? Was that something you had to work out, iterate over time, or? So, I think learning to let go was was important in the journey, mm-hmm. right? So, um, I kind of went through this exercise in, in year two or year three of the company where I was trying to figure out, you know, what are the things that I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing, 
right? Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a list of things that I was working on that, you know, sometimes you um, trick yourself or intentionally right. into thinking that um, being busy is, is the same as productive. Yes. Right? And so there are a lot of things. There are a lot of meetings people didn't want me in. Yeah. Right? But, you know, they, mm -hmm. they don't say get out, right? <laughs> but um, kind of made a list of all the things that, that I shouldn't be working on. And then um, at that point, you know, a lot of my time was freed up. Then I was really able to focus on the things that we needed to be working on, mm -hmm. right? And then that's kind of where we saw a big growth tick. So you were able to do that on your own without, so I did, I've done exercises at um, some of the companies I'm involved with where we've had that issue where the CEOs maybe has, you know, the company's kind of grown and they have their fingers in too many pies. And I've actually sat down with the executive team and we very gently sort of talk about, so what is everybody focused on and how much time are they spending? And done it, I guess, a couple times now where the CEO sort of had an, a bit of a light bulb go off and realize, oh, you don't need me in those meetings. Oh, and they didn't get their feelings hurt. It was sort of like a relief almost like, oh, now I can focus on the things I really want to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, you did that on your own. I mean, that, this, this other process required a little bit of nudging and a little bit of polite reminding. Um, I think that's a high level of self-awareness. I mean, that was just, was, was your mentor involved there? Or did you just sit down and I was, your team must have been like, wow, this is pretty awesome. So I was having some personal issues at the time. Like, um, that was, so, um, now we're getting personal. Yeah, but, um, but that was pulling time away from the business, and so you had even less time to... to yeah, pull. so, well, the, the key was, how do I manage my personal relationships if I'm spending all this time um, right. on things that I shouldn't be spending time on? Right. Right. So you were forced to hone it down the hours in the day, just you just didn't have enough. Yeah, I mean, that, it didn't end up working out anyway, so it opened up time for me that I right. was able to drive through the business. But right. it was a great kind of... Uh, um, uh, lesson that was that was there. Yeah, that's good. A lot of people don't. I mean, don't they're just not self-reflective enough. They they feel that self-importance, and I've got to be in every meeting, and I've got to get everything. Yeah, they they tell me to leave meetings all the time. That's now, awesome. So it's well, now they're at that point where you're <laughs> like, okay, I'm out of here. Yeah. We'll take yeah. the next student's question. Um, how, what were the skills you lacked when co-founding Arion um, that your other co-founders made up for, and how did you know that working with another co-founder would be the right decision? So John was the first co-founder. Well, he's, he's the co-founder. And um, I knew that John had been around the block already with, with several companies. So there's a starting point there, right? And so, um, you know, things like what's the legal structure of the company? Uh, how do we find lawyers? What do we do for picking health insurance for our first employee? What are the consultants that we need to look at our books every month, those sorts of things John had right away, mm -hmm. right, on top of his, you know, technical expertise. So we started there. And then um, my management team that I hired, they, they were all about seven to ten years older than me. So they had, they all had experience. And so they've, um, they've all been around the block at least once, mm -hmm. right? And so Greg Fish, who is effectively a co-founder. He came in about eight months after, but he had started a company 10 years before that. Um, they you know, successfully led it to acquisition by JDSU. Um, and so knowing that I can pull from people who had different experiences than me um, was, was kind of the, the key strategy there. And also to, um, as, as, as I talk to people about how to solve this problem of building a company, 
um, trying to understand what the various roles were. Because I didn't even know, like, what is a VP of right. R&D? I don't even know what a VP is, right? Like, like I don't even know what a CEO is. I, I just know that I have a vacuum cleaner next to my desk, right? <laughs> um, but going through and trying to understand, like, oh, okay, so this is kind of what that role is. Do I really need it? What type of person is it? Is it somebody who's very orderly and you know, gets, gets all these details in order such that uh, we don't drop any of the details? Or is it somebody who kind of thinks about things? And you know, It was a long process and, and kind of iterative, but um, having people that had more experience than me that I could learn from mm-hmm. was awesome and amazing. So, you, but you must have some tips for because it doesn't work out for everyone. Um, it's it's hard being a younger person and having subordinates, even if they're almost peers. But it's, it's hard sometimes. I mean, I've been in that situation. Do you have any tips or just any recollections on how you made that work, where someone had ten years of experience in business, you didn't have any, and yet you were the CEO and they were the VP of whatever? So I think, uh, like, the question is, is like, do you fundamentally can you connect? Right, like so, when you sit and have a conversation, can you really connect with them, mm-hmm. and can you convey information back and forth? Because that's what management is. Right, right. So good they, So, so they have a <laughs> they have a certain skill set that you want to leverage to go do something. You mm-hmm. want to scale through their skill set. Uh, in order for you to wield their skill set, you need to be able to have conversations. Right, and it's like okay. So um, when, when I hired my CFO. Uh, I, I think I recruited him for six months, but I was so obsessed with him because he was the only person that could ever explain to me what the FNA department needs to really look like. Mm-hmm. And we sat there, and he just draw the boxes. I was like, I totally get it. I totally right. understand. Right. And it wasn't just like um, I think I understand it, but having enough of those conversations, and it's like that totally makes sense. How could nobody drew that for me before? Right. That's how I knew, right? Because again, you can have a heart to heart. Uh, on on the topic, then you know that as you continue, you can have more heart to hearts about it. So mm-hmm. so again, I think it's about people and communication. But I bet you, because I, I was in a similar situation where I was the business person. I had two wonderful academics that we formed businesses that they had formed the businesses. I joined the businesses, and we did quite well. And and I think what I what what I recall, and, and it was sort of this this curiosity that they both had to learn. I remember one of them sitting down in my office saying, what is a balance sheet and how is it different from an income statement? Which is a very basic question. <laughs> but this person was, you know, a PhD, a brilliant person, but the sincerity and humbleness and curiosity with, that, that was behind that question, I was glad to answer that. And mm-hmm. so I'm sure that you conveyed a similar, you know, there was no sort of, I know what that is, or just this weird sort of dynamic of a person that's not skilled in a certain area trying to cover it up. That goes a long way. Just being honest with somebody and saying, "I don't really understand this this aspect of the business or whatever you're talking about with them." Most people will respond to that and actually lean forward and help 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 you to the point where you do understand it. Yep. But I think you have to be you have to be pretty self aware and you have to be pretty secure in your own. So I, I view it as this, right? You can exert power or you can exert influence, mm. right? And, and so I think for a company to to have. Um, the ability to sustain, uh, it should all be influence, right? You should never wield power. Right, right. right. And, you shouldn't and, have to. And that was sure. deep in the, the culture. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. That makes for a healthy culture. We'll take another question. Hi. Uh, I'm curious if you think photonic integrated circuits are going to be able to make their way out of big applications like data centers and into smaller things like consumer electronics. So I think that they will. I think there needs to be 
a few levels of um, cost decrease, right? Where if you look at it, um, we we went from telecom applications where you know optical links can be anywhere from 10k to 100 thousand dollars, right? To something in the data centers where it's sub thousand dollars, right? That's a pretty big jump. Um, to get into home applications, I think you got to be less than forty bucks, right? And so that's something intrinsic in, in the cost. Now, as you sell more data center parts, the uh, manufacturing should get more efficient, and you get into the realm of things that are are um, are cheaper. Now, the application space I think will also diverge where it won't only be communications. I think sensing, there's a lot of talk about optical LiDAR and those sorts of things. Um, I think you'll see more of that, but uh, it's, it's, it's a process right, of, of, of scale and cost erosion. But that is a pattern we see over time. It's something that's like air conditioning went for many, many decades was just in big buildings because it was so expensive and the equipment was so large and then eventually got scaled down. So probably, the answer is probably yes, but who knows when, right? It's going to take time. Um, let's talk about Juniper a little bit. So you acquired 2016, great outcome for you and your team. How did that relationship develop? Did it start as a partnership? Did they just come knocking? Was it a banker? How did that go down? So we had taken an investment from Juniper um, three or four years before okay. the acquisition. And, and at that time, um, you know, Juniper has a pretty amazing working culture, right? Like people, again, very aligned in terms of um, very respectful, very data-oriented, right? Very innovation-centric, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, we had an investment from them along with other co companies that we believe that um, – uh, we're good partners because our goal was to develop products with this kind of syndicate of companies, mm -hmm. right? And also to serve the syndicate of companies and, and, and sell broadly. Um, and, you know, we had worked with each other long enough that uh, when the time was right, uh, an acquisition happened. Okay. So it's kind yeah. of organic at that point. They yeah, knew you well, organic. they trusted you. So I'm a big fan of strategic investments. Um, that's, what, that's what it is when someone that's not a, not a, professional investor invest, um, but some people don't like them because they, they can come with some strings attached. So how did you manage that, you know, not giving them a first right of refusal or just making sure that it was arm's length between the investor as well as the partner? And did, were other competitors in the deal or was it? So the way that we positioned it was we didn't have competitors that were in the same layer, mm. right? We had um, companies in different layers of the of, yep. the, of the value chain, Got it. And, and from there, there can always be competition between layers, but it's not as um, emotional as uh, competition inside the same right. layer. Right, right. right? And so, so we wanted to build a cap table that was um, healthy and balanced, right? Um, my attorney, Judy O'Brien, she's amazing, but um, she always says, don't let them buy you without buying you. Right, and so right, right. like you want to take enough money to do what you need to do is to show that everybody has um, it has alignment and has vested interest. Yep. But you don't want to let power get exerted, right? And so we're just very careful about how we built the cap table. That's hard to do. That's hard to get competitive companies, even collegial companies. It's hard to get them sometimes to be strategics together. Um, so you were able to manage the weird provisions and no board no board seats. Yep. You just kind of kept them at bay and said. 
trust us, we're going we're gonna to do right by you as an investor, and we're going to do right by you as a partner, but we're going to keep those separate. And there are always ways that you can, you know, instead of giving a board seat, you can give them a, a observation, observation yeah, right? Yeah. Instead of giving them a right of first refusal, you can give them a right of first notification. Right. But there right. are versions that are, are um, still uh, amicable. Yep. Right. I did both of those. Yeah. And I always thought, why wouldn't I notify them? Of course, I've got to notify them anyway. So, exactly. So we'll give them that right. Exactly. So what drove the timing? You said it was sort of organic. Was it, um, were you, was it the cost for you to keep going as, an, as a standalone entity? Was it just something on their product roadmap where it suddenly made more sense? What, what drove that specific timing? I think it was a mixture, right, where you could see some of the business terms started becoming, um, we, we reached a point where it just made sense where we could be more productive together, right? Where Would you have had to go out and raise more money? Were you at that point where it was sort of a decision? Yeah, I mean, between... we, we are always raising money. You know, every right, every right. 18 months, you're out raising money. Yep. But um, it just made more sense because what they really wanted from the product and um, was, was really for them, mm. right? And so instead of taking more investment that you know, offsets the, the, the cap table, right. the acquisition makes more sense. Right. So you, you also took institutional money from professional investors as we well. We actually did not. Oh, you never so did? So we never took VC That's money. That's remarkable. Yeah, so we never took VC money. Um, you know, so first of all, photonics is a tough thing to get yep. venture money for. I think it's a little bit better after there have been more deals in the last couple of years, but right. .com kind of made it uh, tough for people to get institutional because money. Because of the hardware aspect and nobody wants to invest in hardware. Well, there's a lot of optics companies that, that lost money in, in .com, right? Yep. I think the second thing is B2B is tough too. B2B right. hardware yep. is tough. Yep. Um, we probably could have gotten um, VC money I think our first strategic round the valuation, if it was lower, we probably could have gotten VC money, and mm -hmm. it could have been a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we just weren't on that path. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And strategics often aren't as value sensitive, so you can, yep. you can often get a higher valuation. But that's the reason I said it's remarkable is they don't usually lead. They often want to have an institutional investor lead the deal, and then yep. they'll put money into the deal. So yep. good for you. Yeah, that was something unusual to pull off. We'll take the next student. What, are, what were some of the difficulties you encountered when filing and being granted 18 patents? So from a patent perspective, you know, it's, it's a process to, to learn about what's valuable to, to, uh, to file. We had an amazing patent attorney, this guy Eric Caponia. Um, he was with BSTZ. But uh, he really understood the the nature of the inventions that we were doing, yep, that so helps. It, it made the claim process um, pretty pretty painless. And so we can go and harvest the IP from our team, where you know, he'd come in and we'd do a session and mm. uh, talk about what what are all the potential ideas, get the people in the room, and figure out if there was an idea or not to 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 patent. Um, I think IP is always something that. Um, you keep on shoveling money into, and you don't know if it's valuable or not, right? Because it's it doesn't the the value of it doesn't appear until you go to litigation, right? And that's just isn't something that we've ever done because you don't know how good it is until till then, right? So you just build the arsenal, but how much of an arsenal is enough, yep. right? And and so there, there's a balance there where, you know, it's like well, how much do I spend this year? I need to allocate the budget. I need to build IP, but 
I don't want to do at the expense of building product. Right. right. Well, that's where it helps you know some strategics that might be interested in your company because that IP could be worth a lot more inside their walls than it ever is worth in a startup's you yeah. know, inability to prosecute the, uh, to prosecute the IP. So I know you're, you're happy at Juniper and you're learning a ton, but it's kind of a twofold question. So when you sit down and daydream about what's next, I'd love to hear what, just, you don't have to get specific, but just sort of in general, what, you know, would you start another company? If so, what would it be like? I mean, and then, and then, sorry, twofold question. Um, and then, well, maybe I should just let you answer that. I was just going to ask you, what learnings do you think you'll take specifically from this Juniper experience? So I think watching large companies is, is interesting, right? Because there's a lot of um, dampening forces to, to keep the company out of trouble and to main reputation, maintain right. reputation, yeah, right? right? Like uh, things like quality organizations and, you know, startups don't have... Right quality organizations. Right. Documentation. Right, ah. right, like ISO and that kind of stuff, right? Right. Um, uh, so learning about those sorts of things I think is interesting. Yep. And also that um, what does it serve? And, and it, it, it shows you, it makes you think about, well, well how much is enough, right? Because uh, making sure that you can align the team such that they just put what's enough for, for what you're trying to do, mm-hmm. I think th- those things are kind of eye-opening um, I, I think that also, you know, running a company of 60 people versus 10,000, right, is, is really different. And, and yep. the kind of, uh, the, the things that they do to do messaging and all of that, uh, I think is pretty fascinating. Yep. Um, but see, there goes, again, you're, you're a student of business. Like, you're, you're just a, you're a great student of business. Even... I mean, you, so other people can look at that in a negative light, and for you, it's a new world, it's a new experience, and you're just learning as much as you can about this new world, and not necessarily passing judgment on it, which I, I think is wonderful. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's just fascinating how, how you can align that many people. Well, how many people are in your group? We're about 60. Okay. Right, so it's still pretty So you're small. feeling pretty comfortable with... Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you generally know everyone still, and, right, right. and, and uh, you work pretty closely, and you know, you're in the trenches. Right. right, so you have that subgroup within the larger Borg yeah. that you can, you can kind of find comfort in. <laughs> yeah. That's good. We'll take another student's question. Do you, <clears throat> do you have any piece of research that you conducted that you're most proud of or you enjoyed the most? Not, not really. I, I think the whole thing was just fun, right? I, I think um, uh, being able to geek out with some stuff and, and you know, when you, when you have... When you're working late on a problem, whether it's a business problem or if it's a research problem, and you have a big aha, and everyone looks at each other, oh, that's pretty sweet, right? Like those moments are really fun. It's a win, right? And uh, um, and and so it's not necessarily that you, you know there's trophies on the wall or anything. It's it's more um, like that was a lot of fun. I do it again. I want to have more fun, right? Keep having fun. Are you comfortable talking about what you would want to do next? I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot. But... I, I mean, so I'm not sure what I want to do. So when I look at it, I kind of view life as life in chapters, right? Where, you know, some people will say that this person is a doctor, this person's a professor, this person's whatever, an entrepreneur. For me, I think it's more kind of fluid. And like every chapter, I'll play a different role, right? Um, and it, it's, it's based on, at that time, how do I want to spend my time and my, my life, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I look at, so I'm 38, um, and my big question is, how do I want to spend my 40s, mm-hmm. right? Like, what's that chapter? Right. Um, I, I really love working with teams, right, and, and, and building that aspect of it. Again, 
the, the company stuff is, is, is really fun. Um, I don't know if, if I don't know if I want to do that again, right? Um, is it is it something where you know I work with students? Is it that I join boards? Is mm -hmm. it I haven't figured it out, right? Or is it something that I go learn something else that I really love and, and go work on that? Um, it's open right now. And you may not know until you experience it. I I'm, I wasn't sure when I started investing if I would want to be that operator. If I would secretly be frustrated by yep. giving advice and then not having it listened to like I wanted it. So I kind of dipped my toe into it. I was an angel investor for a while. I sat on a couple of boards informal. I don't think I was an official board member. I just would show up and be an observer. Got to understand that cadence a little bit better. And then found that at that point in my life, I was happy being more the advisor, whereas I probably wouldn't have been 10 years earlier. Yep. So I think you'll probably go through a similar experience. You'll become an advisor, join a couple of boards, and then kind of see if that's working for you. And if you feel like you're not getting you know, enough juice for that, you can, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would love to have you involved you know, in their in their next venture, either as an operator, investor, or, mm -hmm. or both. So you must be approached by, I would assume, by a lot of fellow academics who see your success and they think they have an idea or they have some aspiration of becoming an entrepreneur. I'd love to hear what kind of advice you give them and, and, and what you tell them to prepare themselves for, for that journey. So I think first thing is, you know, find a team, right, where... Um, Again, my, my, my team really kept me in line and, and right. got me thinking straight, right? And, and again, it, it needs to be something where, you know, I, I've used startups as, as like a quest, right? Or a treasure hunt, right. whatever you want right. to call it, right? right? right. But you're going to be on the ship or whatever with, with these people, right? Make sure that you're not on a ship alone and, and make sure the, that the people that you have on the ship are the people that you want to do this with. Because right, because you're going to spend a lot of time. It's a them. long journey, it right? Is. It is. Um, and you want to focus on the on the on the quest, not interpersonal right. nonsense, right? Um, the second thing I say is, uh, you know, I think learning is important, right? So find mentors, right? Read, talk to people, mm -hmm. get out there, right? Mm -hmm. and, and try to broaden the horizons and yep. and, and challenge your assumptions, right? Because um, you know, when you look at things, there's kind of perceived value and there's intrinsic value. And then there's also a perceived trajectory and intrinsic trajectory. Mm -hmm. What really matters for the long term is uh, intrinsic value and trajectory, mm -hmm. right? Because if you can ride that, you, you, can, you can intersect it. Um, if, it's, if you're acting based on perceived value or per perceived trajectory, um, you can be working on something that actually has no value at all and you know, you're wasting your time. And so really trying to figure out what that is in your heart of hearts, I think is key. <laughs> Do you do things proactively to try to enhance the intrinsic trajectory? Have you done things? So, to enhance the intrinsic trajectory, um, I think just trying to understand the space, right? And, and like, so, you know, visit people at companies that, mm -hmm. that you know of, try to understand what they do, really understand it, right? right, right like, right. So, so what do you do? Well, what is it, how does that relate with what the company is doing? And, and like, just keep digging, right? And, and um, you know, there are a lot of things I don't know. And when I ask, when somebody tells me what their job is, I go, well, what, what does, does that, that, that actually mean? look like? What does it actually look like? I used to ask that all the time. Right? What does that mean? How does that put the, cut through the words? Like, how does it manifest itself? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, one thing came to mind when you were saying that about the sort of in, in the internal enhancement or is, uh, I, I, 
is get, and you mentioned the, the people around you in the company, but I think it goes even beyond that. It's the people, you know, there's that uh, cliche about you're an average of the five people closest yep. to you. There's truth to it. And so I think as a young person, especially, um, it's, it, you know, really be mindful of curating that group of people around you and think in terms of, you know, how is it additive to where I want to go, either professionally or personally or whatever. And I think we can all do that as professionals. Um, it goes all the way back to Ben Franklin's Leather Apron Club or whatever, where he would bring in all these people, really eclectic group, and it was a drinking group, but it was also a group that would sit around and talk about politics, they would talk about issues of the day. And I think that's an important thing to start even as a young person. You don't have to formalize it. It doesn't have to be something where people feel like they're going to school, but, but it should be a bit more than just drinking. It's sort of that balance between having fun totally. and learning something at the same time. Totally. I think we can all do that. I'm, I'm, I'm aspiring to do a bit more of that. Um, we'll take one more student question. If you could go back in time and change one aspect of starting up, Ariane, what would you change and why? So I'm not a person who, who lives with... I don't regret... I think the so no redos, no redos. Yeah, I mean it's. I learned what I was going to learn, and 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 mm-hmm. it was it was fun. I super thankful for the experience. Um, yeah, it was it was a great ride, and I, I made mistakes along the way. Sure, of course, well, like tons, right? And uh, you know the key is to learn from them, right? Like you fall, you get up, figure out why, and 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 keep going, right? Right, and you know. Uh, you'll make enemies along the way and those sorts of things, but just uh, um, that's, a, that's, a part of, that's a part of it, right? You just learn. So this is, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you're going to fall. Just don't fall for the same reason, right? Yeah, <laughs> fall for a different reason. Um, so we haven't really had a chance to talk about this question, but are there technologies either here at UCSB or even in the greater beyond that students should be thinking about? If they, if they say to themselves, I don't really have an idea, but there's but I do feel like I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I want to be an entrepreneur. Are there areas that you're excited about that you think are, are, are something that the students should be focused on? All of mine are going to sound cliche. No, you know? come on. Um, so I, what do I think about these days? Um, I, I think a lot of the medical sensing stuff. Uh, so I, I think in general... Um, so wearables, things like wearables, that? Wearables. I, I just think that medicine's broken, right? Mm-hmm. Where... Um, uh, you know the, the tie-in between diagnostic and real treatment is something that I, I think is is it's not efficient, mm-hmm. right? And and, um, and also a lot of kind of behavioral and, and and psychological things, right? So I think that stuff's interesting. Um, I actually think blockchain is really interesting. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I'm fascinated by blockchain. Um, but don't be confused between the cryptocurrencies themselves and blockchain. I think yeah. blockchain is a fundamental technology. is very interesting. Some of the currencies are going to yep. come and go. And even the concept of d- democratized currency, I think, mm-hmm. is actually very powerful. Where, um, like, like we're we're kind of blessed to be in the U.S. where right. where um, our currency is pseudo democratized because we're a democracy. Right. But it's actually controlled, right, um, by our democracy. But if you look at other nations. The, the currency is controlled by a small, yep. uh, small set of powers that be, right? And so um, the value of currency is really um, how do I, I translate my work into an abstraction so that I can exchange across the world, mm-hmm. right? And have some predictability as to what that exchange is going to be next week. Exactly. And so I think the, the power of that, like I truly believe in, in it as a democratization of, 
of currency. Yep. Um, the question is, is how is it all going to pan out? Exactly. I don't know, right? right? Um, and then all the other negative things that come with that. Um, so I think that's super fascinating. Um, machine learning, again, there's going to be a lot more of that. Huge. Robotics, there's yep. going to be a lot, a lot more of that. Yep. Um, again, all cliche. Yeah, but it's uh, good for the students to hear because it's it's really going to impact this group here and all the, and the folks, the younger folks that are watching this. It's going to, we know it's coming. Get ready for it. And yeah. AI and robotics combined, just a lot of jobs are going to morph and change. I'm a believer that other new jobs will come in. What is it, the ebbing effect or whatever the guy that invented mm -hmm. the lawnmower and all the things that came out of the of that. So I do believe that new jobs will 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 result from this technology, but a lot of old jobs are going to go away. And I think the way to look at it is there's 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 two types, right? One type is the consolidation or the redoing of, of old jobs to make it more efficient, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, it, it could, you know if, you, if you look at OpenTable, it's a reservation system, right? It's like, if, if you told everyone, I work for a reservation company, right? right? That, it's like, that's not a tech company, that, you know. Um, but the, the function is, is super valuable, mm -hmm. right? And, and the ability to do that, or TurboTax, like instantaneous taxes, mm -hmm. right? Because so, so that... You know, people don't have to do things manually. Right. Like the power. So in those businesses, it's two things that are combined. One is understanding a business workflow, right? Yep. And then being able to automate it with with technology and right? make it simple to use. Exactly. Exactly. Re reduce the friction. Reduce the barrier of usage. Yeah. So I think that whole family of of um, companies and stuff. Uh, there's a lot of that, that that's going to happen, and that's great. And I think there are a whole family of, of, of new jobs and, and things like that that or applications that don't people don't even realize will, will come to yep. be. No, right? I totally agree. And I always encourage my students try to look at the secondary and tertiary effects. Everyone get most people can identify the primary effects yep. of some of these autonomous driving or whatever, but try to think of the second and third um, related effects that are less obvious, and that's where the opportunities will be. Everyone's gonna go after the primary ones, look for the other ones. Yep. And those are hard to look, that's why it's it's hard. Got to yep. think. You got to be clever. You got to do a lot of research, and you got to talk to a lot of smart people like Alex. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having <laughs> me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.